May the words of my mouth and meditation of all of our hearts be always acceptable in your sight, O Lord, our strength and our Redeemer. Amen. Please be seated. He came to him by night, perhaps because he wanted a private audience, or maybe he was just too embarrassed to be seen with him, or maybe both, but he came by night. And he was, of course, one of the most distinguished biblical scholars of his day, revered by all who knew him as an expert in the Torah. And as such goes hand in glove with this occupation, he was a pious man, devout by anyone's standards. His clothes marked his authority. You would look at him and straight away know that this was no carpenter, he was no fisherman, he was no herder of livestock. His, um, his job made sure that his hands stayed soft and his mind sharp. He often dined unquestionably with men of renown who sought to be his equal in terms of propriety, um, men who sought his opinion, people who wanted to be his equal in terms of scholarship, but who would often defer to his opinions, especially in issues of Hebrew ethics. The man called Nicodemus was not a teacher. He was the teacher of the Jews. He was not a teacher of the Jews. He was the teacher of the Jews. And so he comes in this clandestine encounter with Jesus because here he is meeting with this man with rough hands and a sun-worn face, a blue-collar accent, and sort of gutter street language. Uh, Jesus' dress would not have been anything like Nicodemus. He would have been the equivalent of blue jeans and a t-shirt. And here comes Nicodemus at night. Of course he comes by night. He has much to lose and almost nothing to gain. But there must have been a reason, don't you think, for his coming by night. There must have been a reason that he wanted to come at all. I mean... Maybe it was something that Jesus said. Maybe it was something that he did. Earlier in in chapter 2, you remember you heard this story of of Jesus driving out the the sellers of of animal sacrifices and and the money changers from the temple. Perhaps this was so provocative to Nicodemus that he wanted to know more about it. Or maybe it was something that Jesus said that we just simply don't have access to. Whatever it was, he was interested. He was looking for something more, wasn't he? I mean, that's why he came in the first place. And he starts off, Rabbi, we know that you are a teacher come from God, for no one can do these signs that you do unless God is with him. Nice start. It's a good start, isn't it? But it's a setup. And you know it's a setup because you've heard this start yourself. You, you felt this, um, this kind of compliment that segues into a criticism. I remember my first boss. Joe, I really like the way that you shelve that bread. But hey, come on, let's get on the ball. We know there's there are grocery sacks that need to go in there. The beer needs to be stocked. There, I mean, there's cleanup in aisle three. What are you doing? Nice job on the bread. There's more to be done. Get moving. Chop, chop. Maybe you've heard this before yourself, right? Hey, Sam, I loved your lecture last week, but I'm not so sure about the gains on mutual funds, you know, or or Morgan. Nice job on the art project. But how about that crummy grade in chemistry? You know, what's up with that? You've heard the setup, haven't you? Teacher, we know that you have come from God, but what's with the chaos in the temple? 
Why are you always embarrassing people? What do you think about eating shrimp and lobster? No, he probably didn't say that. That's what I would have asked, but he didn't ask it. Whatever the motivation, Nicodemus, you've got to know Jewish uh, orthodoxy, maybe. Nicodemus comes to Jesus. He begins a conversation, and Jesus messes up everything because he changes the subject. Whatever Nicodemus wanted to talk about, he didn't want to talk about these things. And Jesus messes it up. You heard what he said you, at first. Perhaps you remember this. He says to Nicodemus, right after the first thing comes out of his mouth, Truly I say to you, no one can see the kingdom unless he's born again. What? Born again? Born a what? You know, I'm an old man. Born again. Why are you talking like this? This is not what I wanted. And you know, Jesus' reply was something like, golly. I don't know if it says golly in your Bible. It doesn't mind. Um, golly. Do you not get this? This is elementary stuff. This is rudimentary theology. How can you not understand this? And this is where we jump in in today's lesson. The gospel lesson comes right in, right at the, at the end of, of this point. Jesus messing up the whole discussion, coming from left field with this completely um, sort of mysterious, enigmatic language about being born again. And then, right after that, says this, And just as Moses lifted up the servant in the wilderness, so must the Son of Man be lifted up, that whoever believes in him may have life eternal. What? I can just see Nicodemus looking at him like, what are you talking about? You know, this is not where I wanted this conversation to go. First, we're talking about being born again, and now you're back in Numbers 21. What are we doing? Uh, you remember this story from Numbers 21? That it, it, was it new to you? When you like, heard, like, I feel like I've heard that before. I know what happens. You know, I've been here myself, you know, where I'm going to read the Bible cover to cover. You ever been there? You know, like that first time, I'm going to read the Bible all the way through. I mean... Goodness, I read, you know, whatever, uh, Tale of Two Cities in high school. I can read this, right? And so you, you open it up, and you're like, Genesis 1-1. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. The earth was formless and void. And the Spirit of, uh, hovered, Spirit of God hovered over the surface of the deep. And, and you're like, oh, this is awesome, you know? And you're getting into it, and, and then you're at Abraham and Jacob and Joseph. I mean, it's like a fast-moving story, and, and Exodus with a pharaoh and all the, you know, alligators and whatnot. And you're, you're excited. And then... And then you get to Leviticus. Yeah, you've been there, right? And you're like, oh, my word. Sacrifice after sacrifice and do this on this day. And, oh, man, by the time we get to Numbers 21, are you kidding me? You know, like, I'm going to move ahead a little bit. You know, I, whew, next thing you know, you're in Ruth. You know, you just flip right through a whole big section. Jesus tells him the story, the story of Moses in the, in the wilderness, children of Israel complaining Oh, our life was so much better in Egypt when we were slaves. I mean, whoever says that, right? They're saying, oh, we don't like this crummy food that comes out of the sky every morning. It's plain. It has no flavor. Uh, I remember a little girl said to me one time, I don't take communion because I don't like the way it tastes. You know, <laughs> I, I wish it tastes like Oreos, but it doesn't, you know. Uh, it, 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 I, we don't want this food. Oh, it's just, it's so bad. We just wish we could go back to it, Egypt and God send serpents. Snakes start biting people in the camp, and they start dropping like flies. People are dying everywhere. And then they come back and say, you know, we're sorry. We didn't mean it, you know. Call off the snakes. And Moses prays for the people. God intercedes, and, you know, he holds up a bronze serpent on a pole, lifts it up in the sky. And when you look at the serpent, if you had been bitten, you're healed. Jesus says in the same way, I'm going to have to be lifted up. 
And I think Nicodemus is really, really confused. I think this is not at all the conversation he had envisioned happening, and it is just completely going, completely derailed. Jesus has totally grasped the agenda. He is, he is taking control of this conversation, hasn't he? But I think if he had ended there, if we like stopped right there, and we kind of dissected what he said, oh, you must be born again, and you know, you must look upon Jesus in order to, in order to be saved, we would be like, oh, yeah, I get it. I mean, it's a bit humbling, isn't it? You've messed things up. Now look here and get things right. But we can do that. We've messed this ship up, but we can right it as well. And so we start to, to think, well, I think I understand where he's going. Only this next verse, this verse that everybody has memorized. Children in Sunday school know this one before they can probably add. Um, this is a verse that Thomas Cramner put in the Book of Common Prayers. Comfortable words of scripture. You, you've heard me say it hundreds of times. For God so loved the world, he gave his one and only son, that whoever believes in him shall not perish, but have everlasting life. God is the initiator. God is taking action. God is the subject, right? God so loved the world that he gave. It begins with God, that God gives. He gave his one and only, monogenes, only begotten, not, not offspring, but God gave his very self. That whoever believes in him shall not perish. And I think that most of us have heard this verse, and we've kind of, here's what we hear. I mean, we hear the words, but it comes into our minds something like this, that if I believe in Jesus... I will not go to hell, but I'll go to heaven when I die. That's sort of the way we've interpreted. But that's not actually what Jesus says. It loses, well, he does say that. I mean, that certainly is the case. I don't mean to undo that. Yes, of course. But it's more than that. There is an immediacy that we lose when we make it about some sort of insurance policy. That's not what he's talking about. It misses the very present, the right now moment. This word that is used, uh, translated perish also is used in other places in the New Testament. Like this verse in chapter 10 of Matthew's Gospel. Jesus is sending his, his disciples out on a preaching and healing mission. And he says to them this, Go nowhere among the Gentiles, enter no town of the Samaritans, but rather go to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. The word lost is the same word that we often translate perish, in John 3.16, go to the lost. Now, obviously, it's not the dead sheep of the house of Israel. It is the lost. Those who are, who are wandering astray, right? Imagine how radicalized it changes the way that we view this passage. For God so loved the world, he gave his one and only son, that whoever believes in him will not be lost, but will have in the present moment, life rooted in the eternal. I mean, it just, it, it's radical. It's about right now, this very moment. Of course it's about the future. But it's about now. He'll have life. She'll have life. She won't be lost, but she'll be found. You see, Jesus takes this conversation and he just rips it away from Nicodemus. None of these theological provincialisms. You know, how many angels do you think you can balance on the 
head of a pen, you know. Can God make a rock so big he can't move it? Jesus will have none of this. None of this kind of conversation. But I think it also shows us something about Nicodemus. A pious, devout, serious man. A religious man. A student of the Bible. He comes to Jesus by night because for all of his religious excess, he still doesn't have the thing that he's looking for. For all of his religion, for all of his devotion, he still doesn't have the thing that he's looking for. And I think it tells us something about the nature of religion, that it gets us close, but it doesn't get us there. It gets us very close. But if we have only the form of religion without a real encounter with the Holy Spirit who brings us into the presence of God and helps us to see God in the face of Jesus Christ, then it's just religion. It's just form. Don't think I'm against religion. It's my business, right? I mean, it's the thing that I do. I I love it. Love the church, the liturgy, the tradition. Oh, I mean, it's in my very bones. But religion is not the same thing as a deep and abiding relationship. And faith is not just intellectual assent. There are two kinds of belief. Anybody can believe in a God. It takes a heart of faith to believe in the resurrection of Jesus Christ. To have a transforming relationship with the living God. A transforming relationship that takes us out of being lost and makes us alive and found. I know people who say things like, um, they say things like, um, I have no regrets. You know, I've lived my life with no, I've even heard people say, you know what, I want as an epitaph on my tombstone, no regrets. I think that's kind of cool, but I have no idea what those people are like, because my life is like filled with regrets. Yes, you're there too, right? I can't go through a day without saying, Joe, you knucklehead. And I'm not talking about any other Joe. I'm talking about this one right here, right? Joe, why did you do that? You know, why did you say that? You know, I mean, maybe I'm my toughest critic. I'm always on my case. Sometimes I just say, like, leave him alone, you know? But I did something when I was 10, maybe before I was 10. I'm going to tell you about it. It's forgivable. I was a child, but I'm not proud of it. It's just what I did. See, my brother and I lived in the neighborhood There was uh, where this other boy, his, his name was Michael. Michael lived in our neighborhood. Michael was, uh, he was probably between my older brother Jeff and I's age, you know, somewhere around that. Um, he was a thoroughly annoying child. If I had to guess, he's probably a thoroughly annoying adult somewhere right now. But anyway, as a child, probably not. I'm sure, I'm sure he got much better. Um, but as a child, he was really, you know, that kid. You know that you've lived in that neighborhood, right? Okay, so he, he, was, he was spoiled to a core. His mother doted on him like nothing I'd ever seen before. And, and Jeff and I didn't like him, but what made matters worse is our mothers were friends. And so they would get together for coffee, you know, and we'd have to go along. And so either Michael would be at our house, we would be at his house, and there we were, you know. And Michael had one other issue. He had a, um, a serious visual impairment. He, he would be legally blind. He could see, but like he would sit, you know, inches from the television set and, and, and just couldn't, you know, really thick glasses, could not see very well at all. 
And so Jeff and I didn't like Michael. We didn't like playing with him, but we're often forced into a situation where we had to. The only game we ever decided we really liked to play with him was hide-and-go-seek. Yeah. I told you I was not a very good kid. Um, and we would play it in the front yard in the daytime. And you could hide beside a tree. Not behind it. Beside it. You know? Sit in Indian style on top of a trash can, and he'd walk right by you. You know? It just... And the only way poor Michael ever did find us was we would roll so, you know, loud with laughter that he would come and eventually tag us. And then the game would just go on because we'd find him very quickly and back we were to it again. It was awful. I mean, it was tragic. But you know what? Here we were right in front of his face and he couldn't see us. Have you ever had that happen to you before? Searching something is right in front of your face, and when you finally find it, you're like, oh, goodness gracious, how did I not see that? I think that's what John Newton felt like when he wrote these words. Amazing grace, how sweet the sound that saved a wretch like me. I once was lost. But now I'm found, was blind, but now I see. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit.